In my 20s, my position was the kind of default liberal position, which is other people's sex lives are their own business. You know, other, where the other people spend their money is their own business. Prostitution should be legal and it shouldn't be something in which the state has a role in at all. And actually, as I've kind of got older, I worked for a while as a, the chair of a violence against women charity, which dealt with a lot of what they would have referred to as women exploited into prostitution, particularly from Eastern Europe. That I've also become less liberal and more, I guess, socialist. Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarisation Project. You've just heard from our guest today, Helen Lewis, an author and journalist at The Atlantic. She'll be talking to us about how it's essential we discuss difficult parts of people's history and why she's changed her mind about the legalisation of prostitution. But before we get to that, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarisationproject.com. We promote this show with Open Democracy to the 8 million regular monthly visitors. You can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net slash depolarisationproject. As always, I'm joined today by two fabulous co-hosts, communicator and business thinker, Laura Osborne. Hello, Ali. And our behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Alex. Hi, good evening. So Helen's a formidable journalist whose book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, hit the shelves earlier this year. Laura, as an occasionally beautifully difficult woman, (laughs) what really stood out for you from this interview? I guess, well, firstly, I love that description. Um... (laughs) But secondly, it was so refreshing to come across someone who wanted to really search for shades of grey in a story and deliberately seek to become comfortable with uncertainty. You know, our stories and lives are really simple. And I hope the way Helen approached her interview and indeed the way she approaches her broader journalism really does encourage other people to recognise that while it's really hard to consider difficult things in this way, it's tremendously rewarding uh, at the end of it. And what about you, Alex, who I, I shouldn't let you down either. I've got to say you're not averse to being endearingly difficult at points too and have a beautifully endearingly difficult daughter who does occasionally interrupt our interviews. But what should listeners look out for? Well, I think Helen is a brilliant interviewee. She's clearly exceptionally curious in a wide range of topics, almost intimidatingly so. So listeners will definitely learn a lot, I think, from this interview. And in particular, I think listeners should keep an ear out for her critique of unconscious bias training and the work of Iris Bonnets. I'll, I'll come on to that a bit later. And she's right. So many of us are really wasting money on diversity training um, and you know, unconscious bias training without taking a more experimental and curious approach. So similar to Helen that would actually really make much more of a difference. So with all of that in mind, let's give Helen a call. Welcome to the show, Helen. Hello. So one of the central premises of your book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, is that we should tell more complex histories of people and not just airbrush the difficult history of campaigners such as Mary Stopes. How did you set about telling these stories in a way that our brains, which generally prefer to engage on simple goody and baddie narratives, how did you do that so that they could process it and retain them? Well, I think before I start, I should probably outline quite how hashtag problematic Mary Stopes was. So as well as being a a brilliant campaigner for contraceptive access at the start of the 20th century, you know, a time in which she had people who wrote her letter saying, you know, I've got nine children and, you know, I've got a prolapse uterus and if I have another baby, I'm going to die. 
but you know, my doctor won't tell me how to stop that happening. You know, she helped incredibly desperate women like that. But at the same time, she became drawn into a very fashionable ideology at the time, which was eugenics. And, you know, sort of wrote about feeble-minded people and the underclass. And she sent Hitler a volume of her poetry, which never reflects well on anyone. But that was exactly the kind of story that I wanted to tell in Difficult Women in order to kind of say, we owe Mary Stopes an enormous amount, but how do you feel about owing that much to someone you presumably from the point of view of a progressive person at the at start of the 21st century buying a book about feminism, someone that you kind of abhor. And the way that I did that was two things. First of all is, you know, trying to put the little details in, because I think those are what personalise people and what humanise them and what make them feel like someone that you could have met and talked to rather than a kind of very distant figure in a history book. So, for example, in the case of Mary Stopes, she only had one child, a son, born in her 40s. And she tried to forbid him from getting married because his fiance wore glasses. And she said this was a symbol of her kind of degeneracy, that she was bad breeding stock. Uh, and I thought this was awful. I thought, wow, that's really taking eugenics to the, you know, turning it up to 11. But the researcher said to me, well, actually, the thing about that is that she was, she had a kind of, she had a Jocasta complex, a sort of version of an Oedipal complex for a woman. She was very wrapped up in her son and actually no one would have been good for him. And I thought that was interesting to me because it reflected the fact that what can so often look like political choices are actually personal choices about, you know, people we don't like, people we don't want to work on the same side as, you know, extending bad faith to people that we've already decided we hate. So I thought that those kind of personal details really bring the story to life. And the second thing is also just trying to tell people what the official story is and then unpack it. So I don't know about you, but my way of thinking about the suffragettes was always, you know, the mum in Mary Poppins, right? That was the kind of impression I had of them. Posh women protesting in bonnets. And then you get to this incredible story of essentially terrorists. That is really interesting and important to me because it's you're deconstructing the, the story, the simplified story we've been told in school and trying to actually restore the complexity to it. And what's been the reaction of readers? Have they picked up on some of those nuances that you've really gone for? This is really interesting. So I've just published a piece about Harry Potter fandom and the reaction to J.K. Rowling's publication of her views on sex and gender. I mean, I'm sure there will be some fairly aggressive reaction too, but there is also a kind of great sense of relief by people, right? I think social media particularly pushes us into feeling that you have to have a very strong sound and everything, very strong opinions and everything. Someone has to be terrible or good and everything happens at maximum volume. And if you're not, you know, angry enough about it, that means you don't care. And actually very few people want to live their lives like that. And it's one of the things that campaigners have to come up against is that kind of twin problem of, of apathy, which is what almost everybody else feels. And then the small minority of people who are politically engaged feeling very, very you know, up on the causes that they particularly care about and they don't really have time for anything else. So I think there is a huge desire from people just to not feel shouted at. So actually the main emotion I kind of get people back from the book is a kind of relief and sort of gratitude for someone taking them by the hand through some quite difficult material. That's so interesting. Helen, I was going to say, I would like to loop back to the, the suffragettes and your, your point on um, terrorism, that word you just used. So you highlight in the book the role that violence has often played in bringing about change and that some difficult women have used it to great effect, such as, such as in parts of the suffragette movement. Do you think it can help in changing people's minds? And if so, in what circumstances? Well, there was a very lively debate among contemporaries about the, the use of violence. You know, and, and at the time, Millicent Fawcett w- walked out with NWSS of, of you know, split definitively from the suffragettes saying we can't stand for this. And actually lots of their other supporters did the, did the same as they became more and more militant. 
The research that we have, I was weirdly reading a story about someone who'd studied the 1968 um, civil rights campaign in the US saying that large-scale civil disturbances were more effective than violence. And I think that's, I want that to be true. Uh, Christabel Pankhurst wrote in a, an article for the Votes Women newspaper saying, yes, we'd love to have civil arguments, but we can't have them on equal terms because we're not allowed in Parliament. We're not allowed to vote. We're not allowed to be magistrates. And I think that's the that's the bit where I think you have to apply a kind of, you have to say, actually, we've got access to, in this country, to democratic tools of protest. I'm, I'm, I'm more hesitant to make a moral judgment upon people who, who don't have those tools. So we've done quite a lot of thinking about apologies and particularly thinking about the evidence that suggests that, you know, you tend to lose out either way because either the people in your own group thinks it makes them look weak or feel abandoned and those who disagreed with you in the first place still regard you as suspicion. And I wanted to pick up the incredibly touching story in your book, which highlights the case of Maureen Calhoun, who came out as a lesbian while still a Labour MP in the 1970s. And she was deselected by her local party, something overturned by the NEC. And 40 years later, they wrote her a letter of apology. Now, you asked her how it made her feel, and she said it made her cry. And I wondered, what could we learn from her about processing apologies and bringing about change? I think my main takeaway from that story was that she deserved that. And that what was really interesting was that although it was about events that had happened 40 years previously, it still meant an enormous amount to her to know that she wasn't a pariah in the party, that she wasn't going to die an outcast from a movement to which she had dedicated in, you know, an enormous amount of her time. I think, I, I think I've been thinking a lot about this recently, about one of the problems of modern life being that because of the contest over what's true, it can often happen that someone has an injury done to them and then that injury is compounded by the refusal to acknowledge that there was an injury. And I think that process is incredibly painful. I mean, we often use that word gaslighting perhaps a bit too much. I, a couple of years ago, I wrote on the New Statesman website about, you know, an issue on which you changed your mind. And I wrote about, you know, growing up with that casual narrative about what happened at Hillsborough in 1989, right? You know, the unquestioned, well, the police, you believe the police, they wouldn't lie. They tell, you know, they tell the truth, which was very much what I had heard during my childhood. And then that realization about what it must have been like to be the family of one of those people who died, to have the, you know, the loss of your loved one in a you know, I hesitate to use the word accident because obviously there was police incompetence, malpractice, whatever you want to call it, but up to malice. And then have that compounded by being told that it was their own fault because they were drunk and the fans were rowdy and all of that that blaming that then went off. I think that that's an, you know, an insanely psychologically distressing thing to happen to you. And so that apology can't heal what you've done, but it restores that sense that you know, that the world knows what really happened. And I think that's why it's really important. I think that's why it was really important in, in Maureen's case, right, that she she was vindicated from the fact that she wasn't thrown out because she was a, a racist or whatever uh, the other charges against her were. It was down to the fact that she was seen to be not a, you know, not a family man, not a family woman because she was in a lesbian relationship. She was seen as being too feminist, too aggressive, too pushy. And I agree with you. I think there is a massive problem that if people feel that they followed somebody I've seen it in the last couple of weeks, actually, with, you know, with the Rebecca Long-Bailey, the shadow education secretary, was tweeted an interview with Maxine Peake, which had this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory in it. And Maxine Peake apologised for it. And you still saw people who who didn't think that Rebecca Long-Bailey needed to apologise. And actually, I thought was kind of fascinating, right? If the person that you've, you know, you're doing this on behalf of has said, oh, actually, no, you are. I got this. I got this wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I just... 
why are you still fighting the corner that you know that that no one did anything wrong and it's about that reluctance to admit error because it's seen as a concession to the other side and and that's whether that's into labor politics or labor versus tory politics then there's always a sense that you know why are you why are you conceding why are you showing weakness and i, I think that's a real shame i did when i read maureen's story in your book it left me with two questions that I I really had, which was, did you know what prompted her former local party to write that letter to her? No, I didn't. I uh, It's a really interesting question. I would love to find out, actually. I wonder if it was just one person in the local party who had read about her story, because there had been some small pieces about her and a, a researcher went up to interview her. So I wonder if they had heard about it. You know, I'm, I've been talking to her daughter-in-law who is very keen for her to get an, an honour and that's kind of interesting for me right because I don't really believe in the honour system um, <laughs> but I can kind of see why that's important for the family you know that she was a pioneer and that they do want to to to, to feel that she you know that she's been recognised for the courage that she showed and and I felt very strongly about writing a history is what you're trying to do is keep people alive you know, um, within the pages of your book, because there's a Navajo saying about the idea that people live as long as there's someone alive who remembers them. And I feel that quite strongly about the, what the point of doing women's history is, is to make sure that, you know, we, we keep these people alive through the memories of people who remember them. You know, like you, I'd always thought that Chris Smith was the first out MP who was a Labour MP in a, in a London borough for our American listeners. Do you know why... I don't know if he let that narrative develop, but, you know, that would have been something I would have not wanted. If that was me, I wouldn't have wanted it to all go. How did that narrative even become something that developed? And do you know what his view is on it? I don't know what his view is on it. I'd be really, really interested to ask him. I think that the difference is that he was championed by his own side, right? He, the wheel had turned enough that by the time that New Labour appointed him a minister, it was like, this is who we are. We're a party that will give gay people a chance to serve. It's it's really interesting to me in politics that there's a kind of availability bias that, that people need to kind of shout about things or they haven't really happened. I was just writing last week about the fact that if we finally got no-fault divorce coming next year in this country, passed, you know, but without a division in its third reading and its second reading, there were hardly anybody voted against. So this campaign that's been 30 years in the making, you know, that basically all everybody in the law was on board with relationship counselling, opposed by a few social conservatives, but increasingly you know, softer and softer feelings about that. And, you know, passed, and there was absolutely no coverage of it. And it was astonishing to me. And it was because it wasn't a culture war, right? It was because there was no one against it. And precisely for the fact that the wheel had turned long enough that actually now everyone had kind of come on board and just seen this as a, a thing that, of course, you'd have no fault divorce. Why would you make people go through all that, you know, aggression with each other and then try and split up their assets and access to their children? But that's what's happened. That's what happens in politics. If no one can claim a victory, then real achievements can go completely unnoticed. And I think that's what happened to Maureen. The party didn't treat her very well and therefore it wasn't something that they wanted to shout about. And well, who else would, would do? The other thing that really struck me from her story is she she then went back after the Labour Party had treated her that badly. She went back and worked for Labour MPs in the House of Commons and stayed a Labour Party member. And I just I wonder if that, you know, like how hard is it to leave your political tribe? How badly do you need to be treated before you do it? And is that something that really, I suppose, contributes to polarisation? I didn't know if that had come up at all from your conversations with her. I think she had hoped to get back in as an MP. I think she loved being an MP. She really felt that it was a place where you could make speeches that would, you know, change people's minds, where you could try and pass legislation that would would change people's, you know, 
um, daily lives. It was an important job and a thing to be, it was kind of a vocation. The party divisions in the late 70s were much more clear cut, so I don't see that she would have ever thought about joining another political party. Labour in the late 70s believed in a whole kind of suite of things that were very solidly left-wing in economic terms that she, in which she also believed. So she wasn't going to go off and when it's formed, join the SDP, and she certainly wasn't going to cross the floor and become a, a Conservative. Mm. And I, I mean, and I have to say, I don't have a problem with that, right? I think there should be different political parties for diff- for fundamentally oh. different oh, approaches to the economy. What's more difficult now is the way that politics is very much structured about much more nebulous beliefs. And I think identity and nationalism are two things that are much more likely to polarise than on economic terms. Because, you know, I'm a social democrat, but there are a range of things that I can kind of live with. Whereas, you know, things are so much more binary in identity terms. You know, do you think Scotland should be part of the United Kingdom? Yes, no. It's not, if you, you know, if you're on one side, you can't really live with the other. No, and you're you're right. Like people tend to actually agree much more on issues than they used to, even though they dislike each other much more in a in a party basis. There was fascinating research that just came out this week about, you know, people who hold one left-wing view, and there was a range of them, like also hold this extremely right-wing view. So people who, call, you know, want, uh, you know, m- much more redistributive taxation also want, you know, the death penalty back or more police spending on police. And actually what's kind of fascinating is that the, you know, the groupings kind of don't make sense. So we do end up picking a couple of signature issues like Brexit mm. that you just, then and then they become a, a, a whole chain of other stuff kind of gets associated with it. And I find that absolutely fascinating. I wrote a piece about culture wars in the FT a while ago in which I said, you know, remain leave, you know, political labels about a political project. And yet if I said to you a whole series of things like, you know, okay, are these remain leave, like quinoa? Quinoa is remain, right? Isn't it? Um, the, <laughs> the flag of association. <laughs> yeah. yeah. F- or, or I would say a coastal elite. A flag. To translate Brexit. it to American. <laughs> um, liberal elite. Latte liberals, whatever you want to say. But like, you know, you can, or the, the flag of St. George, you know, and that's, that's, or should you lay it allowed to sell gollywogs in shops? Or, you know, should, you know, should you tear down statues like all of these things that seem to have absolutely nothing to do with these cultural issues get assigned to one side or the other and they become woven into a story about who you are that is a you know that is a a whole list of things that don't necessarily make sense when taken together absolutely we talk about this a lot in terms of what those labels stand for becomes quite obscure as you say, doesn't it? It's like everything is wrapped up underneath it and then trying to pick apart what actually is going on becomes harder and harder because it's kind of obfuscated by everything being lobbed in together. Ellen, I wanted to ask you a bit about business and purpose, something I'm personally quite interested in. After, and I read your blue stocking piece. I was really struck when you said brands will gravitate towards the low cost, high noise signals if these are accepted as a substitute for genuine reform. And I guess firstly, I wanted to ask you whether you think business should be driving social change and then what your take is on how much their motivations matter if there is at least sometimes a positive outcome. Well, the first one's got a very simple answer, which is no, of course not. <laughs> You know, you have to look at what the purpose of a business is, and it's to either maximise shareholder value or to survive within a capitalist system. I'm not upset about that. That's, you know, in the same way that the point of a church is to attract and retain believers. You know, these are just the, the these are just the vehicles that have developed for a particular purpose, and that's what businesses are. Now, I mean, obviously, there's some fuzziness with that with social enterprises, and, and there are some incredibly praiseworthy businesses like, you know, Timpson's, the the shoe menders, which makes a real point of hiring ex-offenders and that's absolutely woven into its purpose. But by and large, 
it's not going to come as a massive shock to people that Coca-Cola isn't left-wing. Coca-Cola's, the point of it existing is for the perpetuation of, of people buying Coca-Cola. And that's fine. But but don't expect that it's on your side if you're a, a left-wing activist. And that's what that piece was kind of about, is getting seduced into thinking, oh, isn't it great that, you know, all of these brands are posting solemn Instagram messages about, you know, Black Lives Matter they're doing that because that's the thing to do to survive as a brand in the current moment and and I and where I where it crosses into being outright objectionable to me is when they use that to wallpaper over their own practices whether or not it's a business like Amazon for example which has which we say interesting tax arrangements and a poor record on valuing workers concerns about their their workplaces loads of American employers um there's a brilliant story in Bloomberg this week about how unbelievably you know, aggressive they are about union busting, for example. So I don't want to kind of see your thing about how you value all the, you know, the people who contribute to your work if you, you know, fire people who try and organise to get better wages. And I think people get really sort of seduced by the fact they see, they see a lot of stuff happening because people are changing the name of something. And like, oh, we've really achieved something with this. And you think, well, what what have you achieved? And this is why I go back to the fact that the question I always ask is, you know, do you have a crash? And the second question I think I'd probably add after that is, and what do you pay your office cleaners? Because I don't care what you're saying, you know, in order for your upper middle class employees to make them feel good about themselves. If you've still got people cleaning that office on below minimum wage, you're you're not a good progressive employer. And so what about the cases where even if they've done it for entirely selfish reasons, there is a good that comes out of it in the end? Do you think that has a place or do you think fundamentally government should be taking the lead on all this stuff and there isn't, as you said at the beginning, there just isn't a role for business and we as consumers should stop expecting them to have one? I mean, I'm not going to be mealy-mouthed about the fact that, you know, you sometimes get good outcomes because people respond to, to activist pressure. And I think, you know, gen- there's a lot of activist pressure that is really good. It's campaigns against use of palm oil, for example, I think that's it's been really mm. good. You know, movements, anti-sweatshop movements, all of that, really, really good. What I think the, this crucial distinction I was making in that piece is the difference between what I call social liberalism, which is we stand with X on their social media feed, an economic radicalism, which is here is how we're going to bring in, you know, restructure our board, or here is how we're going to make sure that everybody who works for us, you know, is paid a living wage, or, you know, has proper maternity and paternity leave entitlements, like the stuff that costs you money, that's the stuff activists will should fight for, because that's the thing that companies will be most reluctant to give you. Mm. So it's the practice, isn't it, rather than the rhetoric? Totally. Yeah. And do you think it's things that cost money or that involve giving up power? Both. Because I think, I mean, money is power in large respects, right? but it's also control. And I think that's the point, isn't it? If I write about diversity training in the piece, meta-analysis says it has short-term effects of raising people's awareness, but they don't really tend to last very well. They don't tend to change. Um, they can't predict on a stable basis how prejudiced someone is, and they don't really seem to change long-term people's behaviour. But what they do is provide something that people can kind of point to as like, here's a thing that we have done. And my problem with that is, you know, Keir Salmer's just announced that he's going to send himself on diversity training. And it it does feel like that, the equivalent of having a public inquiry, right? It's the thing you do when you yeah. want to show that you're doing something. <laughs> um, and you included an absolutely eye-watering stat that I can't remember off the top of my head about how much is spent billion on that. a year. Eight Iris, billion. But, um, Iris Benet, who's a professor at um, Harvard, I think, John F. Kennedy School of Government. Yeah, eight billion a year. What's the sort of fascinating thing to me is that White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, this book by a white woman about white people, is now at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. 
and, and I sort of one of those things where you kind of go, okay, you could either buy a book to unpack your defensiveness about racism, or you could, you know, if you're in America, for example, contribute to um, you know voting rights defense. Because one of the massive problems in America is huge gerrymandering of electoral districts and the provision of very poor amounts of polling stations in minority black and brown areas, right? So people, again, it goes back to the point, they're literally being deprived of power because they're literally being deprived of a vote and a voice. And that's probably more helpful to let other people have their you know, speech in your country than it is to navel gaze about you know, whether or not you're too defensive about being called um, a racist. It's so, it's so frustrating. So frustrating. I see that. Um, I've seen that a lot in terms of organisations, you know, appearing to solve a problem rather than actually solving a problem. Um, I think it's linked to that need for certainty as well, that, you know, doing unconscious bias training, as I said, makes you seem like you are doing something and actually figuring out what will work is is much is much harder and much more much more uncertain but yeah really really yeah I think you're right and also you can say we sent 72,000 staff on this exactly. training you know we delivered this we, we spent this much Box on it. Ticks. and it looks it looks like numbers which therefore looks like science which therefore yeah. looks real it looks um, measurable yeah and I think that's, I think that is a real problem I, and again I don't think a lot of this is coming out of malice or grift or anything like that I think it's come out of genuinely well-intentioned people who want to do something good but are finding it too easy to be diverted into the stream of of, of a, an easy win exactly and it's that again it's that focus on inputs you know yes we are doing something rather than outcomes actually well what you know what is it that we're actually changing rather than just thinking we're changing we ask all our guests about a time they have changed their mind you've told us helen that you've changed your mind about the role of prostitution what was that shift and why with the proviso that one of the things that I've changed my mind about is my is that I've come to accustom myself to an enormous amount of uncertainty around the subject. So apologies if I sound vague or, or waffly on this, but uh, you know, in my twenties, my position was the kind of default liberal position, which is other people's sex lives are their own business. You know, other whether other people spend their money is their own business. You know, if it's legal, it, you know, all prostitution should be legal, and you know, we, it shouldn't be something in which the the state has a role in in at all. And actually, as I've kind of got older, I worked for a while as a, the chair of a violence against women charity, which dealt with a lot of what would have, they would have referred to as women exploited into prostitution, particularly from Eastern Europe, that I've also become more less liberal and more, I guess, socialist. And I, it's one of the things that I find really fascinating is that student feminists particularly are very what they would call pro-sex worker and, and into the decriminalization and legalization agenda that is, I think, kind of fundamentally neoliberal, which is, again, another of those words that gets massively overused. But it is about, you know, the market's lack of, you know, the market regulates stuff and that actually, other, you know, there's no such thing as society. And, and I think that now, I think a couple of things, which is first, our policy on this should be based around minimizing harm. Now, it might very well be that you need to decriminalisation is is the way to do that. Certainly, I would say the regime we've got at the moment doesn't seem to be working. People, you know, very scared, particularly to report violence if they're working on on the street because they're worried about you know visa transgressions or they're worried about not being believed, all of that stuff. So we're definitely not getting it right at the moment. But what I do also think is it's one of those things that everyone else is allowed to have an opinion on too which I think is quite a challenging thing now in, in progressive politics, because we all live in a society which is shaped by, you know, the fact that quite a lot of men buy sex, almost no women buy sex, and almost all of the men who buy sex buy it from women. And what does that do when you have 
women's sexual availability commoditized. You know, and I feel the same about porn. We all live in a world that is deeply, deeply shaped by porn. So whether or not you're appearing in porn yourself isn't the only criteria for having an opinion on it. And that's where I really moved from the kind of, it's none of my business what other people get up to, to actually there is such a thing in society and it is it is my business. Obviously, I don't know as much as people who are directly in, involved, but I am still allowed to have an opinion as a member of society. Was, was there a particular moment or experience that, that led to that shift, Helen? One of the things that I, I remember quite distinctly is I wrote a piece about Punternet. I don't know whether or not it exists. Funnily enough, I don't. Funnily enough, you I don't. Might have to explain what that is. What's Punternet? Yeah, what's Punternet? <laughs> Punternet it is or was, as I say, I haven't looked at it for years. Um, it is a trip advisor for sex workers. Mm. And that is exactly as kind of soul-destroying as it kind of sounds. Right, so the idea is that if you're a punter, then what you want to do is obviously write down reviews of particular establishments, particularly women at those establishments, to stop other men getting ripped off. And I went and I read like an enormous amount of them. There was a a project to try and, which circulated some of the more distressing ones and they were only a small minority of them actually a lot more of them were kind of sad in the vein of you know she's a lovely girl she sort of she, she shouldn't be doing this kind of I treated her exceptionally well I left it to, you know all the tip that this sort of weird folk sort of chivalry about this this business and I thought actually you know what I just don't I don't think this is a way that men and women should relate to each other I don't think this is particularly healthy that you get to bypass all of consent and what it means to have a human relationship with someone on this fundamentally intimate level by just injecting cash into it. It's obviously going to result in exploitation. And it's obviously going to result in the more economically powerful partner, you know, wielding a huge amount of um, power over the less economically powerful partner. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where people don't want to look at it because they don't want to feel that they're being prudish, I guess, or that they hate sex. And I nearly put this, I can't remember if I put this line in my book, which I nearly put in, um, which was, you know, I like sex so much I have it for free. <laughs> and, and I felt that, you know, but this has been this constant attack on, on feminists who've raised questions about the sex industry is the idea that you hate sex itself, right? And it's like saying, because I have questions about the working practices at McDonald's, I don't hate burgers or meat or the concept of food. Uh, what, I, what I question is the environment in which all of that is happening. And I think there's been a huge reluctance on the part of the feminist movement to seem uncool or prudish and therefore to interrogate what the economic transaction does in that situation. But like I say, this is one of those opinions because the gender issue is, is so much more to the fore in feminism. It doesn't get talked about so much, but it is very much the same kind of split between the old left in feminism and the new student feminists that there is that you know that the attitudes to prostitution or sex work whichever however you want to describe it and both sides kind of say well look you know listen particularly the younger activists say you know listen to sex workers and the problem is you kind of go well which ones because there are people who are obviously very happy with a job you know it puts food on the table whatever it is you know they, they will point out that there are other jobs that are dirty and dangerous and very badly paid and there's not a kind of moral um, outrage about them and then the anti prostitution side will talk you know will will bring forward women who have worked in it who feel that they were you know raped repeatedly for money so it's not one of those ones that can be solved in the way that people try to appeal to authority of lived experience because people have very different experiences within exactly the same job and industry and I'm just curious Helen were there given your focus on difficult women and how they can help change minds was there 
any difficult women that you spoke to or difficult conversations that help trigger the change you just talked about? That's a very good question. I mean, I have to say, that, and, and it's it's interesting to me that I, as I say, I, I still don't know where my thoughts are on it. And I have been categorised very much as a kind of anti-sex feminist or a swerf, if you want to call it that, which is the new terminology for it. And I'm not entirely sure about that in terms of what I believe about the regime. But I have to say that I did notice that most of the feminists that I respected who had spent a long time working in the violence against women sector were of that opinion, that there was no way of saving the sex industry or creating a better, you know, safer one. In in countries like Germany where, uh, you know, it's legal, there are kind of just giant mega brothels with kind of, you can pay one entry fee and have sex with several different women the same night, you know, that I, and, and like kind of, they essentially become kind of warehouses for Eastern European women. And I do think, well, actually, almost everybody I respect on this is on a different page. But then Maureen Colhoun, we talked about earlier, she was you know, pro-legalisation of prostitution, not even decriminalisation, full legalisation, and brought sex workers into the House of Commons, right? And and so there's somebody I completely respect who I think has probably got a, a different view to me. So I, I try now and keep my mind open on what the policy prescription is, even if my, I guess, moral or intellectual feeling about it has has changed. What do you do to try and keep your mind open? Is that like something that's conscious as well as unconscious? Yeah, totally. And I and I think it, I think it has to be because I mentioned the word heuristic earlier. You know that idea that you make your mind up very quickly based on snap judgments. And one of the most powerful of those is our what do people like me think? Like what does my you know what do my lot think? And it's really really hard. And one of the things that's quite useful is to try and read stuff without a byline on, if you see what I mean. Try and read stuff imagining that it's by someone you agree with when it's an argument you, you know, made by someone that you hate. Um, and and how much good faith would you extend to them? And also just try and pick holes in your own side's opinions. Um, but I, I, it's one of the things I think that causes me most problems as a journalist, but also I think is, is the thing that I most feel I need to do, which is not to pander to people you know who feel I'm on their side but to constantly disturb and disrupt that and it makes it really hard because you just don't you know I see journalists who write the you know the same old crowd pleasing toot for their little section of society and they do very well out of it um and their lives are probably much less stressful as a result well and they probably are better paid with more hits and all of that kind of stuff it is economic because actually I speak to huge amounts of people all the time because of the subjects that I write about people say you're so incredibly brave to write about them and I couldn't say that because I'm worried about losing my job and actually that is a huge huge but I think people are really have lied to themselves about the fact that there are sectors of society sectors of society which are so in one ideological place that actually it's very lonely even to dissent slightly from that let alone be completely the opposite pole um, you know, I write a lot about theatre and I wrote a piece about the National Theatre just before Christmas. And I was like, you know, is there anyone who supported Brexit writing plays now? Like what plays have you got on that speak from that perspective? And it's really hard because actually, you know, and this is in the Jonathan Haidt book, a lot, you know, that, that, that what's happened is you've ended up with some jobs becoming the preserve of liberals and some jobs yes. becoming the preserve of authoritarians. And he writes about it in academia. Yeah. I've not seen, and you might have done, any studies that... Um, look at that byline point because I think that's really intriguing or even I've seen lots of people look at framing but less at the uh, you know like the blind studies are you aware of any or would the Atlantic ever do any 
I was just going to say, it reminds <laughs> me of blind CVs, which is the research yeah, from Yeah, it reminds Bonnet me hugely In recruitment, that. yeah. And that's, that's how to get, get round. Oh, definitely. If people see, you know, um, Hamesh Patel or a stereotypically black name on a CV, they will mark it down comparative to a, you know, an Anglophone British name like Helen Lewis. And that's, you know, that's just, that is where bias does definitely exist. And you can very easily take that away by, as you say, a blind submission process. Um, But no, I had a look. (laughs) So I, um, I'm just pitching my second book at the moment. And I have gone through a phase of thinking I actually, because it's a subject that's that's so male, I want to write about, would I be better off publishing it as Hal Lewis? And I have always wondered, I wanted to do an A-B testing experiment about writing a piece and yeah. having one version of it published under a male byline and another a female byline. Yeah, I think I think you could. And just on your point about like blind CVs, there's a study out here which actually shows that discrimination is much more on the grounds of politics than on race when mm. it comes to employment. So if somebody puts on their CV that they were involved in, or Zoom as it would be here, um, that they were involved in like the Republican Party, even you know, not a controversial end of either Republicans or the Democrats, that they are discriminated against as an outgroup. Well, that's of a piece with that really interesting Pew research about the fact that Americans are now much more relaxed about their child marrying someone of a different race than they were 50 years ago, but much less relaxed about them marrying someone from a different political party. So the question kind this is the upsetting question, which I'm not, I don't want, I sort of, I think I worry that I know the answer to and I don't want it to be this, is Will there always be an outgroup? And if we reduce racism and sexism and homophobia, then we'll find different outlets for that. Like, do we as humans just have a deep desire for there to be a good team and a bad team? And the actual mechanism we use for sorting it changes dependent on the historical context. And this is going to be our one now. Like, you, oh, there's no way around I, I think, it. I think Alex might have the answer for that for you. <laughs> I am... I'm optimistic that there are ways around it that's not entirely deterministic and we're stuck with this forever, but it is really hard. And actually, it's not just, you know, blind CVs or bylines, but it's also, I think, policy, you know, policies, when you put policies in front of people and you remove the parties that are associated with it, again, that massively swings people's support or aversion to it just based not on the actual policy, but just on the party that it's associated with. So really difficult. I remember this happening a lot during the Ed Miliband years of Labour here in Britain between 2010 and 2015 about the fact that, you know, individually something like nationalising the, you know, the utilities companies, water and gas, and it's just really all nationalising the train service actually got majority support. Right. And I was like, well, so why aren't people electing a Labour government? And you're right. It's because it came packaged under a leader that they didn't like. Well, I'm, I'm pleased that you're optimistic about it. That's one one I cheery be, thing. I could be very naively optimistic, but I think, yeah. What's going to say all about you, Laura Ali? I think it's an inevitable trend and that then you get some shocks to the system that reset people. So it's interesting, you know, I feel like it's a vortex that our brains naturally pull us into and occasionally you get a a, a reset. So we've talked before about superordinate goals and whether the pandemic would be one, I think it probably will prove not to be, but actually things like a massive electoral loss can help reset where people are. There's a guy called Sartori who writes on it, which I will do some links in the show notes for our particularly more academic listeners who enjoy reading very precise and slightly dry books about party political structures. Well, that makes sense that then it becomes much more like, you know, a um, multi-faith country, right, where you can't really move from one religion to another. You know, if you're living in a, yeah, actually it becomes such a big deal that you're crossing like a hard border instead of there being, like, as I say, if if you're looking at a system, like the German system, right, then there's a sort of spectrum of parties that you can kind of, and you can see how you edge from one to another. But in the US, moving from Republican to Democrat is 
such a, it is like losing your religion, right? It's like going from being a Christian to being an atheist. Like, it's just that bigger change. And I hope that those exits still exist. When you're in the spiral of it, it can feel so bleak that you don't necessarily know that a little bit ahead there might be an opportunity to get out of it. And I think that's an interesting thing, looking at it from the perspective of history. But I'm like you, I'm slightly hopeful still. But Helen, you have tapped on exactly why we set up this podcast, which is that if you start to get more people talking about how and why they change their minds, then actually it begins to normalise it a bit. And hopefully you can begin to build some bridges and make a, a group of people who have decided to walk a different path. That's a, a large part of the reason we do what we do. No, I mean, I always think of the... Um... Cass Sunstein research and that, that phrase and the very nerdy phrase about being a norm entrepreneur, right? That there are some people who just set the norms and the signals that they give off are sufficiently important. My friend Ian Leslie wrote a profile of Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, you know, had the 10,000 hours theory in Outliers, which then another writer called David Epstein came along and kind of debunked. And, and he writes in the profile of Gladwell, you know, he knew he was the more famous person in that. So he knew he had to set the tone of their exchange. And so he welcomed him and the critique and I think that that's what politics is kind of, and journalism are kind of lacking, is a sense that, thank you for the correction, now we both know more, we've come closer to our sort of perfect vision of, of knowledge, instead of like, no, you've done me a status injury because you've, you've, you know, you've questioned my authority. Mm. It's much more like a zero-sum game, isn't it? And the frame is about winning rather than what's the, you know, what's the, what's the right or what's the evidence, which, which sounds much less, much less sexy. Right. And I, of course, am totally fine with being criticised and never, ever get defensive. So that's really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Ellen, one last question is, is who would you like to hear from about a, a time that they've changed their mind on an issue? I would really like to hear from somebody who has left religion. I remember once talking to Richard Dawkins when he guested the New States from the magazine I used to work at about the fact that he knew about a forum for former vicars who had you know who'd lost their faith and I think that's extraordinary there was a bishop who went through this who that went through this process a couple of years ago quite notoriously and lost his faith and he said well the hard thing about them is it's not just about you losing your ideological frame for the world but it's about losing your job maybe losing your family losing your community and what does it require for you to say that out loud so I would love to hear from somebody who's who has had that courage to stand up and say I don't feel it anymore. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and, and, and blown their entire life apart, really, because I think that's an incredibly, incredibly courageous thing to do, but also one that will cause an enormous amount of hurt to the people around you. No, you're right. That's hugely costly on a number of levels. I'm sure there's a bishop who quit over it. And I think that's the thing is I, I see so much of, of bad ideas and people's attachments to bad ideas are about both the fact of status you know, and, and the people losing their status and their community place, and also feeling that it will be humbling to them. And it, it's hard to admit that you're wrong. And mm. people won't react to that particularly well. There are a lot of reasons to kind of keep going with something to lie to yourself, actually, as much as anything else. It's extremely costly, personally yeah. and professionally. Yeah, you lose your vicarage, your wife or husband, you know, might still be remain in the church. How on earth do you deal with that? complication it's it is it is absolutely blowing your life apart in a um an incredibly hard way so i i'm, I'm fascinated that anybody ever does it i would have thought hum, as humans psychologically you have such mental barriers to causing yourself that level of you know to live with that level of unhappiness rather than confront it um so i'm i, I i'm amazed but people do 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 it yeah so we have got any listeners uh, who have changed their minds on that please get in touch because that would be fascinating 
Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Before we discuss, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So now we've heard the full interview, was there anything that you wanted to reflect on, Laura? Thanks, Ellie. Helen made the point really clearly that businesses focused on shareholder value and surviving in a capitalist system will focus on doing just that, on surviving and will be driven to maintain the status quo, something she also writes brilliantly on for The Atlantic. But it was good to dig into the exceptions to that rule. And conversely, at the same time, the risk, though, that there are others where virtue signalling is actually slowing down genuine change. And it was good to explore with her sometimes the short-term costs of taking positions that can create a more purposeful, longer-term business. Yeah, I really agree with that, though I've got to say sometimes it can feel a bit performative. And Helen sort of touched on this with the recent examples around people suspending advertising on Facebook because they were concerned that it was a platform on which hate can be generated and they, they weren't taking enough action on Facebook. So a bunch of brands pulled their advertising. But, you know, the the former you know, mobilizer and activist in me sort of smells a bit of a rat because if you're selling to consumers, then the prime time that you're doing that is over Christmas. It's not over summer. So I suspect if people went digging into some of those brands' advertising history and the ad library, you found that really they've pulled very little at all. And that really does feel performative and insincere and inauthentic. Um, Alex, what did you make of the, the interview with Helen? So I wanted to pick up on what we highlighted at the start around unconscious bias training. Um, there's a meta-analysis done fairly recently that showed not only does unconscious bias training not only work, so it doesn't have any downstream effects on actual behaviours, but in some cases it can backfire, meaning that people become more biased after having the training, which is the opposite of what you want. But the challenge is that organisations rely heavily on unconscious bias training to show that they're doing something. So it's often seen as a tick box exercise without it actually fundamentally changing um, or levelling the playing field. So I guess I guess I was just preempting the next question on what, what actually can be done. And there's a, I think there's a couple of things that, that can be done a bit more practically. So I think one of the first lessons is change processes and systems, not people. I remember unconscious bias training obviously tries to change the person rather than the process or the system. So a couple of examples of changing processes or systems would be using blind CVs and structured interviews, removing language from job adverts, which might discourage certain applicants, and also using really good quality data rather than relying on gut feel, which is often done. That's, I think that's the first lesson. Second lesson is, this is from John Haidt, actually, and some of the classic findings in social psychology. It does feel quite counterintuitive, but rather than calling out specific identities, so whether it's racial or ethnic differences, make them less relevant by actually calling out what we all have in common and what we have that's similar between us, not what is different. And then I think the third recommendation or insight would be to go and read Iris Bonnet. So that's the researcher at Harvard that Helen mentioned in the interview. So she wrote the book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. 
she is brilliant and then also I think a really good practitioner who blogs and writes really well on the subject who bridges between a lot of the academic research and what actually works practically in organizations is is a guy called James Elfer who runs a, a company called More Than Now so James Elfer can highly recommend him as well on this topic. Alex, at the top of the interview, we also talked a bit about uncertainty and how Helen's deliberately sought to become more comfortable with it. What can we all do to help create that environment? I think admitting it right up front. So admitting that you don't have all the answers, but there are people out there that do, or there are ways and processes or means that you can try and find the answers. And I think being in the field of behavioural science, in the using experiments, you often do an experiment you often don't know the answers to start with and you'll run an experiment and then you still don't know what works but I think my one of my favorite phrases to use is that actually experiments never fail because you always do learn something so even if you find a particular intervention doesn't work you at least know that and you know you can go back to the drawing board and start again to find something that does work to solve whatever problem so I think I think in a nutshell it's really acknowledging it and then finding a way or a means to lean in and, and find out what I guess what might reduce that uncertainty. Thank you, Alex and Laura. Just before we wrap up, I did want to highlight one particular phrase from Helen's book, which certainly made me trickle, which was despite Helen's attempts to tell really more complex histories of people and why that was, she acknowledges that some people are simply, as she calls them, spherical bastards. So that's a bastard, whichever way you look at them. And that did make me laugh. So I wanted to share it. Has Helen inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why? At the end of this series, we'll be doing a special listeners edition of the show. Email alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about what you have changed your mind on. The best response will get a copy of Helen's book, Difficult Women, History of Feminism in 11 Fights. Whiz out to them in the post. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, don't forget we have a full back catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring Peter Gagan, an award-winning Irish investigative journalist who often works with our partners, Open Democracy. We'd like to thank Open Democracy for their support of the show, Caroline Crampton for editing, and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music. <laughs>